Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. This month we're looking at the idea of living lives that are intentional, living purposeful lives. So how many of you know it's real easy to get to a point in life where you're just drifting or you're not quite sure what direction you're going? You know, like if you ever, you know, if you ever ride on a lake and you're and the motor stopped on your boat and you're just drifting, that'd be kind of a bad place to be, right? You're kind of just being controlled by the currents and you're, the weather's going to be kind of blowing you all over the place. Well, that's kind of the idea behind this series is we don't want to be like that boat, just sitting with no motion, with no direction. We want to live our lives heading in a certain direction, guided by this uh, vision to follow God's purpose for our lives. And so we continue with that idea this morning. We're continuing in this series. Now, my sermon this morning is actually going to follow on quite nicely from Mark's sermon a couple of weeks ago. So Mark's right here. So let's pretend Mark's not right here. But who remembers Mark's sermon from a few weeks ago? Living lives of purpose and the four points. Well, if you weren't here or for whatever reason, you have not remembered all of those four points which would be crazy. I will refresh those four points for you in a little bit this morning. And then we're going to build on that. So the the idea behind the sermon this morning is we're seeking lives of purpose. And Mark outlined four ways that we can live in God's purpose. And you can listen to that sermon again if you need to. But the, the idea is that um, as we're seeking to live lives that are purposeful, that are really going after what God has for us, unfortunately, life has a way of complicating that. Right? Life has a way of complicating and kind of coming in. And this morning we're going to look at, uh, well, you know, what does it mean to seek God's purpose, to live out this purpose? And we're going to do that looking at one specific story from the Bible. And we're going to spend some time on this story and kind of unpack it a little bit because it's really going to show us what do you do to live life in an intentional, purposeful way, but to do that whenever the world is full of trouble. Whenever there's things that come into our lives that cause us to maybe be blown off course a little bit. Have you ever seen this before? The top line is your plans for your life. And then the bottom is the universe's plan for your life. So if you look at your plan for your life, what do you see? Smooth sailing. sailing. Just... Just head in that single direction. Boy, that's nice and easy, right? But what tends to happen in life? Life. Uh, so we got some obstacles. There's some ups and downs. There's, uh, that looks kind of complicated. So how many of you have set a plan for your life at some point and then you realize five years later, boy, it's nothing like what I thought it was going to be like? I mean... I mean, oftentimes we make that plan, right? I work in college admissions and I'm always asking people, what's the five-year plan for your life? You know, it's kind of the dreaded question, right? And people are like, I don't know, but I think I know what the next step is. And often that's how life is, where we take it kind of this one step at a time and we're always kind of adjusting based on our life circumstances, right? Because life throws surprises our way. Well, one thing that we want to think about is 
if we feel like God has called us in a certain direction, if we feel like we have a certain purpose in life, when these obstacles come into our path, how do we live our lives in a way that makes sure we stay true to our calling, that we stay true to our purpose, that when storms of life come in, we're not so totally thrown, that our faith in God and His provision for our lives isn't completely taken away. So as we think about living lives of purpose, of living lives that are intentionally seeking after God, we have to somehow figure out what do we do with the fact that there are all of these things in life that can blow us off course. You know, and some of these things can be very personal. It can be, you know, sickness. It can be illness. Some of it can be family circumstances where things happen in your family that are unexpected or just completely just come out of the blue and knock you off course. It can be something to do with your finances. It could be something to do with your, your job or your career. It could be even something in your local community that happens that really affects you. Like you didn't make it happen, but it just affects your life in a really major way. It could be the economy. It could be anything, right? And so there are these things that come into our lives that can blow us off course and can cause us to doubt God's purpose. And so this morning we're going to look at an example from Scripture of somebody who was living a really purposeful life. And the idea here is, when the world throws trouble our way, how do we live with hope, with purpose, with peace? How do we hang on to this sense that we're headed in this direction that God has called us to? Alright, so here are the four points that Mark brought up. I hope these are right, Mark. These are from Colossians 1, verses 10 to 12. So Mark outlined a few points that God is really intentional about for us. So whenever we live our lives, we think about the fact that we should be bearing fruit in every good work. That we should be growing in our knowledge of God. That we should be strengthened according to the power of His might. That we'd have endurance. And finally, number four, that we give joyful thanks. So Mark's sermon a few weeks ago, he said, no matter where you live, what job you do, kind of all of these very detailed questions we have about our lives, underlying all of those things is the idea that we have these four things happening in our lives. So this morning we want to look at somebody in the Bible who was living this type of life. We want to look at somebody who was living this type of life. So we're going to look at somebody in the Bible and they were living this type of life. They were living a very purposeful life. And the first thing that we realize about this person is that they were incredibly wealthy. So that's nice, right? That's, that always helps. He's living this purposeful life. This guy wasn't just wealthy. This guy was really, really wealthy. I mean, just like obscenely wealthy. Okay. He also is married, has a large family. Now, these are often signs of God's favor, you know, or you might think of blessing. I mean, it's like there's a lot that's going on in this guy's life. He's got this great family life. He's got this wealth. He's also famous. This guy is also really famous. Uh, everywhere he goes, people really want to know what this guy has to say. They hang on his every word. Because he's wise. So when he walks into a room, old men 
who are considered wise become silent because they want to know what does this person have to say. Young people look up to this person. They say, if only this person would mentor me, then my life would be set. This guy's generous. He gives money to the poor and the needy in his community. He's highly respected by everyone. Everyone loves this guy. Everyone wants to be around this guy. He's rich. He has a great family. He's famous. He's wise. He's also godly and righteous. He's not the type of person to take advantage of other people. He actually lives this incredibly godly life. So you might say that this person is exemplifying everything that we saw outlined in those four points. This guy knows God. He's giving joyful thanks. He's a worshiper. He's doing it all right. Now, the funny thing is, in the Bible, when we read his story, we don't really remember any of this stuff. The person we're going to look at this morning is not famous for any of this stuff. Not famous for being wealthy and wise and not famous for his care for the poor. This guy's famous because it all fell apart. Does anyone know who I'm talking about this morning? Job. Job. Yeah. Everything completely fell apart. So what happened? In an instant, he loses his wealth and his children. A servant comes in and says, somebody came and stole all your livestock from this field. Boy, that's terrible. Another guy comes in and says, uh, fire fell from heaven and wiped out other parts of your flocks. And then another guy comes in and says, somebody else came and stole all the, all the rest of it. Right when he's processing all of that, somebody comes in and says, the worst news of all, all your children were having this feast in one house. A storm came in. The house was destroyed and all of your children are no more. Wow. So, livestock in, in this ancient time was your symbol of wealth. All your wealth was tied up with your livestock. So, essentially, he's lost everything in an instant. Well, Job has to deal with this, right? Whatever direction his life was going in, whatever purpose he felt like he had in life, whatever trajectory he was headed on, whatever he felt called to do in life was completely turned around in one day. Completely turned around. So, if if there's any example in Scripture that helps us to understand what's it like to be living with purpose and have that purpose completely challenged by life circumstances, Job is a great person to look at. We're going to learn a few things from Job this morning. It continues though. Job's health begins to suffer. It gets covered in sores and gets really disfigured and just in a lot of pain. It's at that point then his wife turns against him and says, well, you should probably just curse God and die. Wow. Okay. But don't worry. Job's friends are here to help. Uh, Job has three friends that are really, really well-intentioned. These friends actually do want to help. And they come and they visit Job. When they first see Job, they're so distraught, they don't even really recognize him because he's been so disfigured by all of the scars and the sores. He's in so much pain. When they first see him, their reaction is to weep. 
So can you imagine if three friends come to your door, they're here to help, they take one look at you and burst into tears. <laughs> In fact, they can't even say anything to Job for the first week that they come to visit him because things are so bad. We find an incredible reference here at the end of Job chapter 1 where despite all of this, we read in verse 22 that Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So these friends arrive. The problem is they are terrible at helping Job and they don't give him any comfort whatsoever. In fact, most of the book of Job, there's over 40 chapters in the book of Job in the Old Testament, most of the book is a back and forth between Job and his friends. And they're really bad at giving advice. So that means, because their advice is so bad, Job has to continually defend himself. So one of his friends will say something, and then Job has to defend himself. And then another friend will say something, and then Job has to defend himself again. And it just goes around and around. Now the problem is, Job's friends had this completely wrong mindset when they were trying to help Job. And it has this fancy name called the retribution principle, but basically, I'll explain it to you because it's really, really simple. And what this principle says is basically that the righteous will prosper and that the wicked will suffer. So the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. So that's pretty straightforward, right? If you're righteous, you prosper and you're blessed. If you're wicked, you do bad things, you should suffer. Okay? We're familiar with this. But to take it a step further, the more righteous you are, the more you should prosper. The more righteous you are, then the more good stuff you should have. And the more the evil you are, then you should suffer the most, right? Does that make sense? So we got a problem with Job, right? Because Job is super righteous, but he's suffering like crazy. But so that means this this principle right here, this way of thinking, is completely wrong. Then what's going on in this story, right? And that's what Job's friends were here to help with. And what they decided to do was help Job to figure out why he was such a big sinner, right? Because they had to make this principle work. So essentially what they kept saying to Job over and over was, Job, we know that you appear to be righteous, but why don't you just confess whatever it is that you've actually done that makes God want to punish you so much? It's not really the most comforting message that Job could have received. Because Job's saying all along, no, no, actually I am righteous. There's something else going on here that we don't understand. And his friends are saying, no, Job, you must have some hidden secret sin that's super bad that you need to tell us about. But most importantly, you need to tell God about that really super secret hidden sin that's got to be really terrible for all of this stuff to have happened to you. Why don't you just confess it to God? He'll forgive you and then he'll restore everything that you already had. And Job said, but I'm not going to do that because I haven't done anything. Hmm. So what does Job think 
all along. Okay, well, Job has a really understandable first reaction because what Job says at first is, the very first words we hear Job say is, oh, why did I even have to be born? So Job has a really understandable reaction when this tragedy first happens. He's in anguish. But once he kind of has a little bit of time to process it, he starts to think about the fact that really he is he is fairly fairly righteous and he doesn't really understand why all this is happening. Then he begins to wonder, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? And he starts to mull this over. He starts to think about it. And then he decides, you know, if I had some way you know, forget my friends. They don't get it at all. But if I had some way that I could confront God, if I had some way that I could take God to court to prove my innocence, then everything would be set right. Because if I could just get God into court, then I can prove my innocence. My actions will speak for themselves. I'll be able to tell God how innocent I am and we'll be able to figure this out. And God will have to recognize and he'll have to reverse all of this suffering. What's the problem with that? Well, Job quickly realized, God's kind of powerful and in charge, so trying to drag God into court is a non-starter. The other thing is, where would you find God to even take him to court? Over and over, Job says, where, where will I find God? If I go north, am I going to find him? No. If I go south, no, he's probably not going to be there either. If I go east, if I go west, where where is God that I could find him to bring him to court? And then the other thing he said is, if I took God to court, who's going to be the judge? Right? So Job has this conundrum where he said, I really want to prove my innocence. My friends are not going to help me. And I can't even find God to bring him to court to tell him my plea. And Job gets more and more worked up. And finally, he says, all right, God, if you stay silent, then I'm right. If I, can, if I can't find you, if you won't speak to me, if I'm left by myself, then basically I'm right and there's some other big thing going on. Well, Job was kind of right. There was some other big thing going on. And Job had no idea. His friends had no idea. But we as the reader know what's going on. In chapter 1, we have this amazing description in the Bible where the angels are presenting themselves to God. And in Hebrew, they call it the Satan... I don't know why it's the Satan, but that's that's the way it's written. It's basically the accuser. God says to the accuser, where have you been? He says, well, I've been roaming around on the earth. God says, well, have you considered Job? Have you considered Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan, as the accuser, as the enemy of God, loves nothing more than to drive a wedge of division between humanity and God. And what better person to try to drive a wedge between God and humanity than Job, right? If Job is the pinnacle, if Job is living this purposeful life that's glorifying God, if Job is the example of righteousness, then what better person to go after if you're the accuser? And so God says, okay, you can, you can go after Job under certain limits. And so he does. Now that retribution principle I talked about earlier where the righteous prosper and the evil suffer, 
Well, the accuser also has a version of that. And basically what the accuser says to God is, the only reason Job even likes you, the only reason that Job is righteous at all, is because you give him good stuff. He's only in it for the blessing. Hmm. So, what the accuser is saying is, you know, if you took all the good stuff away, I'll bet Job would just curse you. Job would just forget all about you, God. All right, that's a really big accusation. So not only do we have Job and his friends, we also have all of heaven is watching this encounter because if the accuser is right, if Job basically just gives up and says, all right, God, the blessing is over, forget everything, then Satan's right. Humans are just in it for what they can get out of it. They're just in relationship with God because they want blessing. And Job's friends are no help either because they basically play along with this too and they just say, look, do whatever it takes to get the blessing. If you have to lie to God and tell him, I've done all this terrible stuff, they're basically on the same team as the accuser. So Job is left by himself saying, hang on a minute, I'm righteous. There's something else that's happening here. I don't understand it, but there's something. And if only I could talk to God, if only I could tell him my innocence, then everything will be okay. So what do we find? Job refuses to make a false confession of guilt before God. He refuses to try to manipulate God into giving him all of his blessing back. And he maintains his righteousness. He maintains his integrity and he holds on to the importance of living a righteous life no matter what happens. So we get to this point where there's a stalemate where Job and his friends are completely at odds. They're just going around and around and around. And if you read Job, it's very poetic, but there comes a point where you're like, you've already said all of this, Job's friend. Job has already answered you a million times. Job is righteous, but he's also suffering. That's definitely an issue that we have to deal with. You know, in life, we can be living lives full of purpose. We can be chasing hard after what God has for us. We can be living lives of righteousness and yet trouble is brewing and things happen in our lives that we just cannot make sense of. Just like Job. Cannot make sense of it. So how does this get resolved? After all the suffering Job endures, the speeches of his friends, Job's response is finally God speaks. God does show up. And he shows up in a way that we don't expect, right? You would expect God to come, all right, Job, let's make it all right. Instead, God shows up and tells Job to man up. And he starts to ask a series of questions. Now, Job has basically challenged God and said, all right, God, where are you? i got to find you. i got to prove my innocence. Come on, God, where are you? And God says, all right. 
here I am. His first words to Job, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you're going to answer me. So all along, Job is saying, God, I got some questions and you're going to have to answer me. And God shows up and says, actually, Job, it's the other way around. I got some questions for you and you are going to have to answer me. Okay, well, what types of questions might these be? Well, they're not easy because God says his second question, uh, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Uh, Job, can you tell me if you understand? Uh, Job, who marked off the dimensions of the earth? Surely you must know. You see, Job has got to the point where he's basically said, God, I'm righteous. I am needing to hear from you. Now, Job is right at the point of thinking a little too highly of himself, even in the middle of his suffering. Right? He's this close to sinning in his arrogance. And God steps in just in time and says, okay, Job, let's, let's cool it down a little bit here. And let me remind you of who's really in charge. And God just shares a series of questions with Job where he basically says to Job, look, I created all of this. I created the world. I sustain the world. And Job, there are things that you just do not understand. From your human perspective, you understand a great deal. But there are a lot of things that you simply do not understand. Job never finds out about the discussion between the accuser and God. He never finds out. God never says to Job, by the way, there's a much bigger deal, you know, a much bigger test that's happening and you passed. God never says that. So, God comes in and he says, Job, look, I'm really concerned about what's happening in your life. The fact that God even did show up to Job tells us that. God was really intimately concerned with what was happening with Job. The fact that God showed up and talked to him and the fact that God and the accuser were so much involved in Job's life, we know that God cared greatly and God knew everything that was happening. But he says, Job, look, there's this other level of wisdom. There's this other level that I operate at that you, Job, as a person, will never operate at. And I know you're suffering, but you are just not going to be able to understand all of my purposes. And Job hears from God. And ultimately gets to the point where he says this amazing phrase where he, in response to seeing God's supreme wisdom and the ultimate purposes that God has, he makes this wonderful statement right at the end of the book where he said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of you, but now my, my eyes have seen you. That's a pretty incredible verse of Scripture. So Job gives up his court case against God. Right? Probably the right choice. And he allows himself to see that God's wisdom and power is so much more than his own ignorance and weakness. The result, though, importantly, 
is that Satan has been proved wrong. Job's faith in God and his righteousness were affirmed all the way through this process. Even when all the blessing and all the reward were taken away, Job never turned away from God and he never sinned in accusing God. He never wavered in his righteousness. Okay, there's probably more than four, but I've decided let's look at four thoughts real briefly as we finish up this morning that we learned from Job. The first is, when good people suffer, it's not always because they've done something wrong. And likewise, when we see people that are blessed, it's not always because they've done something really good. As much as we want this principle, deep in our hearts, we're wired for justice, right? When you do something wrong, you should suffer. When you do something good, you should be rewarded. As much as that's deeply rooted in us, it's just not the way the world works. And I think we kind of know that, right? And so Job teaches us that it's just not always the way it's going to be. But it also teaches us that God knows what's going on, God's in control, and that there are often purposes that we're not aware of. But if you see somebody who's suffering, don't assume that they have done something really, really terrible. All right? Because sometimes we think, boy, what's going on there? Second, Job shows us we can be really honest in our emotions before God, but we can still receive God's grace. Do you remember what happens at the very end of Job? Restoration. How wealthy was Job at the start of the book? Just unbelievably wealthy. How wealthy was he at the end of the book? Doubly wealthy. (laughs) Job has restoration in his family life. He has more children. And they go on. It says multiple generations. He lived a long life and saw multiple generations. His legacy was restored. Job receives grace and favor from God. But he also is gracious in response, at the very end of the book, God says to the three friends, you guys were terrible at giving advice, so bad in fact, that you're going to have to ask Job to pray for you so that I forgive you because your advice was so terrible. So Job is gracious and prays for his friends that they are forgiven. He, Job, receives God's grace and gives God's grace. And the other thing, this is a really interesting little snippet, but God, or sorry, Job gives an inheritance to his daughters at the very end of Job. That was unheard of. Inheritance only went to sons, but at the very end, Job is so blessed, he gives inheritance to his daughters as well. Because he's just so blessed, and he wants to pour out grace. So Job was restored. And the amazing thing is, we know by this point in this story that Job receiving all of this favor from God in no way affects his righteousness. He had it all, he lost it all, he gets it all back, and even more. And all the way through, the main thing for him is righteousness. When trouble comes, it does not mean that we are outside of God's plan for our lives. Trouble can, in fact, force us to refine our faith and refine our trust in God in powerful ways. For in the story of Job, we see that the greatest of all joys and comforts is the presence of God. Likewise, the deepest of sorrows is to be far away from God. There's multiple times in the book of Job where he's describing his plight. And I kind of hinted at it earlier. 
But there's multiple times where Job is like, where are you, God? All of this sorrow is happening to me, but where are you? And we get a sense that that's the deepest sorrow of all for Job. That he cannot find God. That God is not present. That God seems far off. Now, we know God wasn't. But that was how Job saw it at the time. We find this incredible um, verse right kind of in the middle of the book of Job where he's talking about the former ways that he used to live. He's remembering his past glories, as it were, before all of this suffering came in. And in verse 4 and 5 of Job 29, he says, as he's recalling all of his days of blessing, he said, oh, for the days when I was in my prime. And what does he remember about those days? Well, he remembers lots of things, but one of the key things he remembers is, oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me. When God's intimate friendship blessed my house and the Almighty was still with me. And I think there's a sense in which that restoration of relationship and fellowship with God is that ultimate restoration that Job has in his life. Where he continues to live his life's purpose. No matter what trouble comes. And he stays faithful in his relationship with God. I'll end with this quote from the New Testament. James chapter 5. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And as you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Father, we thank You that You are full of compassion and mercy. Even though we don't always understand our life circumstances and what life throws at us, we can still be assured, God, that You are near to us, that You care for us, that You love us. We also know from the story of Job this morning that we can maintain lives of purpose, lives of righteousness in the midst of the worst of life's trials. That we can maintain a focus on You and that we can seek Your face. Thank You, God, for the story of Job. We thank You for His example to us. And I pray for everyone here, God, as they go through seasons of life, whether they be blessed or whether they feel that they are suffering, God, that You would bring comfort, that You would bring grace, and that You would continue to show Your love and Your mercy. In Your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.